in particular. We're, we're going to roughly follow uh, some of the insights in this book, Praying the Savior's Way. Uh, it's a walk through the Lord's Prayer, but we're also following the breakdown of the Lord's Prayer that we find uh, in the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism uh, with an intro and a conclusion and six separate petitions that we're walking through. And so we've divided it. Uh, and so far, Rob Steele uh, is the winner. You get a gold star, Rob. He's the only one who has signed up, but don't worry, I brought my sign-up sheet. Uh, so you, uh, you fathers, you heads of households, uh, you men can sign up uh, to lead us, and, and we've got the schedule broken down here. You will get, uh, if you lead, you will get a copy of the book uh, so that you can help us walk through. We're, it's not a study where we're reading the book together, but it, it's, it's just a, a resource for you to help you uh, as you're leading us through really just thinking about the text uh, and, and praying through the Lord's Prayer. So uh, there will be more announcements about that. Uh, if you uh, are an adult male member uh, and you have not signed up, I will find you, um, and I will, <laughs> I will implore you to sign up. Uh, but uh, that will be on the back table. Uh, take a look at it and sign up for it, and as soon as Andrew gets back, he will find you, and he will implore you uh, to sign up. So uh, there's that. Uh, but we are beginning... A study, uh, just a brief two-week study, that's it. We're not dragging it out. We're not going five weeks on what should be a two-week study. Two weeks and we're done. So we need to get started. Uh, so I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're going to get started talking about mercy ministry in the church. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you are merciful toward us. We thank you that you are the God who loves us and cares for us, even though we don't deserve it. Uh, and just as it says in Ezekiel, you found us when we were abandoned uh, and left alone and, and without you, and you, you poured your love upon us, and you stretched your garment over us, and you, you called us to yourself. You are the one who washed us and clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. You are the one who has given us your mercy in abundance more than we could ever think or imagine. And so as we begin today uh, to think about what mercy ministry in the church is, uh, what it ought to look like, and, and where it comes from, we pray that you would help us. Uh, to think well, uh, that, we would, that we would show forth the image of our Creator as, uh, we, uh, as we work through some of these issues, as we encourage one another in the Lord, as we think about what it means to bear with one another's burdens. We pray that you would help us uh, to think well and that you would be exalted and glorified among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, mercy ministry in the church, if you are a Presbyterian, uh, or probably from some other traditions, um, you are used to this, this term, mercy ministry, especially as kind of a technical term. Uh, you, can, you can infer, even if you're not used to it, uh, maybe what it means and, and what it is involved in, maybe even already in the way that I have opened in prayer. Uh, but, but not everybody will be familiar with uh, mercy ministry, so let's start with some brainstorming. Uh, when, when you think about mercy ministry, what comes to mind? Uh, what is it? Uh, who does it? Who needs it? Um, why should we do it? Uh, why is it a part of the church? What are just some of the, the first uh, blush impressions that you have when you think about mercy ministry? Dave? Uh, somebody, you're somebody you're having pity on. Good. And nobody wants to be pitiful. Uh, so nobody wants to be the person receiving. Okay. So somebody you're having pity on. What, what kind of pity do they need maybe, Dave? Okay. 
okay. <laughs> Bringing back my old sermon illustrations, thank you. Um, so, so yeah, so we're thinking about some of those things that Jesus was talking about. I was, uh, I was hungry and you fed me. Uh, I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And, and people say, well, when did we, no, when did we do that? And he says, well, you, you did it to the least of these. Uh, this is, this is part of, of Christian ministry. It's somebody that you're having pity on. It's somebody that has needs uh, that you're able to meet, maybe, maybe physical needs. What, what else? First blush impressions. When you think mercy ministry, mercy ministry through the church, what is it? Who does it? Who needs it? Why do we do it? What do you think? Ronnie. <clears throat> okay. Oh, yeah. 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 So, so uh, Ronnie's helping us to think more broadly. Uh, when, when we hear the term pity, uh, when we think pitiful, you think of those special cases. Um, but, but Ronnie is encouraging us to think about mercy ministry uh, in terms of maybe just special cases. Um, not, not, not necessarily pitiful, not, not the dregs of society, um, not, not the poor of the, the world, but those that are among us, that, that just there's an opportunity to encourage and, and to, to help. So they've got a new member of the family, a new baby. Uh, and mercy ministry very often is uh, what we call it when we organize meals and we, we take over things and we share in hospitality. We, uh, we have mercy ministry through the, the deacon's fund that helps those that, that need those things, like a new septic system, because, oh my, uh, if you need a new septic system, you need one right now. Um, yeah, and so there are needs and things that come up. Any, any other first impressions, thoughts about, uh, I'll get to you in, in just a minute there, Lizzie, Bill. <coughs> Yeah, so Bill's talking about it in terms, at least through the church, in terms of pre-evangelism, in one sense. Um, what good is it, brothers, if, if a man is, is hungry and lacking in food, and you say to him, go and be well, be warmed and well-fed, and, and yet you don't do anything? Is, is that the good works that your father requires? That's a, that's a very loose paraphrase of what James says, but, but that's the argument, right? What good is it? Uh, if, if you think you're here as a church to meet the spiritual needs of people uh, and you ignore the physical needs of people that are they're almost a barrier, you've, you've experienced maybe those situations that are so big in your life, you can't possibly begin to think about anything else. Somebody speaks, of you, uh, speaks to you of eternity, um, and whether it's a septic system, whether it's, whether it's legitimate hunger that you can't get through the day, you, whatever it is, uh, so, okay, Bill's encouraging us to think about it in terms of pre-evangelism. Uh, Lizzie, <clears throat> what are we thinking? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Yeah. What kind of people, who, who are you raking for? Just, just any old buddy? Would you come and rake my yard in the fall? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh no. So you were you were giving mercy ministry beyond the walls of the church to people who weren't even members of our congregation? How dare no no no. That's great. Good. Good. So this is another way to think about it. Do we think of mercy ministry only as something that's near or is it something that 
that is far as well. One of the interesting things that you find as you read some of the early uh, accounts of Christians in the Roman Empire is that they made a name for themselves by extending mercy far and wide, not just within uh, their own confines and their own groups, uh, but there is uh, there's a letter um, from the, the early centuries where uh, an emperor, um, oh, Julian the Apostate, um, uh, he, he's complaining to one of his high priests, and he says, you know, these Christians, these he calls them Galileans. Uh, he says they're giving the, the Romans and, and those who celebrate the Greek religions a bad name because not only do they feed their poor, but they feed ours as well. So the Christians are feeding the poor Christians, and they're also feeding the poor pagans. Uh, and, and Julian the Apostate says, hey, this is bad. We, we need to step up our game because pretty soon everybody's going to go the way of the Galileans. And surprise, surprise, they did. Not because there was uh, a military conquest, but but because they won uh, the day with, with love and good works and charity, in part. They also spread the gospel, and the work of God was behind it. The Spirit of God is behind it. But there is this, this element of mercy ministry that stretches far and wide. Good. Uh, so those are some, some good uh, beginning thoughts. Here is a quote from uh, the pastor of that other Redeemer church, uh, you know, that, that little one. Um, so Tim Keller, uh, in the book Ministries of Mercy, uh, defines mercy this way. He says, mercy is the impulse that makes us sensitive to hurts and lacks in others and makes us desire to alleviate them. What I like about this quote is that it is pretty open-ended. Hurts and lacks. Well, let's not just define that in terms of, um, well, this kind of one particular uh, thing here. Well, we want a mercy ministry where we feed the homeless, and so we only care about the homeless, those that are lacking in this particular area. You know, when we take it this way, mercy is, is a really broad thing. Um, there are lots of ways to show mercy uh, and lots of ways um, to, to, yeah, lots of ways to show mercy. Good. Uh, all right. Uh, so next question. Well, why this? Uh, why are we studying this? Two reasons. One, because it was a request. Uh, so if you ever want uh, to make your pastor teach on something, just come to the session and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to have somebody teach on this. Um, somebody asked, uh, I think, a really good, legitimate question, uh, and maybe you have never asked this question, but somebody came to us and said, well, well, if there's someone in the church who needs help, where can they go? Or if there are people in the church who want to give help, how can we be a part of that? How can we make sure that those who have needs and those who have gifts are connecting? Uh, because especially at, at Redeemer, we, we come together on Sunday, we see one another, uh, we go into the far-flung reaches of Drake it to Milford, everywhere in between, uh, east to west, and, and we might not even bump into one another throughout the week. And, and uh, how can we really be involved in one another's lives and showing some of the mercy of Christ? Um, and so I think it's a good question. Um, but uh, another reason why this is a, a good thing to take up is because of blind spots. We all have blind spots uh, in the church. Um, now, you know what a blind spot is while you're driving. It's that, it's that portion where you look in your mirror uh, and unless you actually turn your head, you won't see what's behind you, and you could merge the wrong way. There, there's a good chance. Uh, my wife and I were talking about my father and his professional driving this morning. There's a good chance my dad is watching on uh, the Facebook live feed, so I need to watch what I say. But my dad was uh, a truck driver. He's a professional driver. And so I got to learn how to drive with a professional sitting in, uh, in the passenger seat, which is a little harrowing. Um, and he would always remind me, because I had this tendency to just 
Uh, I check the mirror, and here I come. I'm merging. I'm, I'm pulling out. And no, no, look behind you. Check your blind spots, and that happens very often in the church. Sometimes because uh, we, we don't really mean to have blind spots, we're just not paying attention. And sometimes because we're juggling really important big things and we miss other things. Uh, sometimes because we have the wrong priorities. Um, you see this uh, earlier, uh, about a century or two ago, as, as what is now called the social gospel was really getting started. The OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, was founded in large part because of a massive blind spot in the way that, uh, that churches at the time were doing missions, especially the Presbyterian Church at the time was doing missions. And so they were really excited about meeting the physical needs of people, but they were not so excited about sharing the gospel. Uh, and so the Presbyterian Church in the north at the time was sending out missionaries, and they were starting to say, well, no, 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 don't, don't go evangelize them, just meet their needs. Don't use, don't use mercy ministry as pre-evangelism, use mercy ministry as ministry, period, uh, and get rid of the gospel and, and just go and, and meet the needs of the people. And Machen, uh, one of the founders of the OPC, said this is, this is not right, and they began uh, the International Board of uh, Presbyterian uh, Missions. Um, I think that's what it was called. I had it somewhere. Uh, International Board of Presbyterian Missions, and, uh, and not too long after, uh, International Board for Presbyterian Foreign Missions, sorry. Uh, three years later, the OPC was begun, uh, and there was an emphasis uh, on the gospel together with um, uh, meeting the needs of people. But it can happen in the other way, too. It can happen in, in the sense that, well, we, we, want to, we want to push against that swing where people care only for the physical needs and not for the spiritual needs. And so we, we push it completely in the other direction. We say, no, 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 we're, we're a church that preaches the gospel, period. Uh, we don't get involved in, in social uh, good. And, and we don't get involved in, in meeting the physical needs of people. We're here just to proclaim the gospel because that's what the church is called to do, right? We talked about this in January. What's the mission of the church? Well, it's, uh, it's to gather and, uh, and perfect the, the elect. Uh, to gather and perfect the saints, to go out and, and share the gospel. And so we can, we can push it on, on uh, the other direction. So we have blind spots. We all have blind spots. They don't always happen on purpose. It might be because we've never stopped to consider the biblical, biblical calling simply to be people of compassion. It might be that we have blind spots just because we think somebody else is handling mercy ministry. It's the kind of thing that happens in, in a church. Uh, you know, I, I, there's... Um, Oh, what's the name of the book? I've forgotten it now. Uh, but it's a book on biblical church growth, not one of these, here's how to get a big church. But he, he classifies churches. You know, a lot of uh, church planners and pastors and, and people in the pews think that, that churches come in three sizes. Uh, they come in small, medium, and large, or maybe extra large. He says, no, they come in four sizes. They come in small, awkward, medium, and large. And there's this awkward stage where, where uh, the logistics of having a larger church get sort of out of hand, and everybody thinks, well, somebody's doing that, right? Um, and, and if it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job. And, and how do you figure out, well, who's doing this? Well, that can be a blind spot. Uh, and, and it can also be a blind spot when you know who's doing it. Well, the deacons are in charge of mercy ministry. That's why we have them. Uh, you know, uh, and they're there to, uh, to make sure that everybody gets what they need, and so I'll wash my hands of that, and it's a blind spot, uh, thinking that somebody else is in charge of it, and so, and so you don't have uh, a calling to it. So it's helpful for us to stop and check our blind spots. Now, uh, you know me. Um, I can't teach on a topic without a text. I am 
Uh, I'm terrible uh, at just, here are my thoughts on this. So we need to start somewhere. Um, and I thought about trying to do something really witty, uh, but quite frankly, I'm tired of that, and I think you are too. Um, and so let's, let's start with, uh, with where we need to start. Here's our guiding principle for today. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. This is our guiding text. Now, we studied this not too long ago. So pop quiz, who can remind us of the context in which this was spoken? What was Jesus saying? What was he talking about when he gave this command? And it is a command to be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Rob? It is not. You are, you are thinking of Luke chapter 10, which is the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan, which we will come to sometime in like three or four years by the time we get to, <laughs> to Luke chapter 10. But no, good, good try. It's, it's a close friend to that passage. But uh, yeah, Frank. Love your enemies. It's this extended teaching that the Lord gave in Luke chapter 6. After he called his 12 disciples, he's just getting started with with the gathered institutional church, he comes down from the mountain, there's a great crowd, and he teaches them the Beatitudes uh, that we find in Luke, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, uh, the mournful, blessed are the hungry, and then he begins to talk about loving your enemies, and it is in the context of loving your enemies, of giving to those who despitefully use you and praying for those who hate you, that the Lord says, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Okay, now that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, what's even more interesting is that this passage, this little text, sounds an awful lot like two other famous texts in the Bible. Here's where you get to play. Guess what the pastor's thinking. Um, but the structure is the same. In fact, we'll, we'll make it a fill in the blank. There are two other places uh, where the Lord or where Jesus says, be blank even as your father is blank. What are, what are the blanks there? Be perfect. Where does that one show up? Not Luke chapter 10. So that one shows up in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And it's interesting that it's the same context. That Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount there is talking about loving your enemies. Not just loving those who are close by, not just loving those who are your brothers, but loving those who hate you, those who are sort of outside the regular circle of your influence. And he says, you should be uh, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we get this idea that, that what are we supposed to do? Well, we're supposed to show forth God's character in the world. It could be defined as perfection. God is absolutely perfect. And Jesus is calling his disciples to this higher standard. It could be seen as this this standard of mercy, God is merciful. Uh, that's right in the same area where the Lord uh, says, right before, be merciful as your Father is merciful. He gives, uh, oh, where is it? Uh, he says that he, he is kind uh, to the unjust, to the unloving. Oh, let me grab it because I didn't put it down here. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. This is the, uh, this is the definition, this is the backdrop. God is kind to those who are ungrateful, those who are evil, and so you must be like this. You must be merciful as your Father is merciful. Now, there is one other passage 
that looks and sounds a lot like this. You shall be blank as your blank is blank. What is it, Becky? You shall be holy as I am holy. Where does that one show up? Oh, close. It's the other law book. That's Leviticus chapter... Sword drill, come on. The Currens know it. Where is it? Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. Good. Uh, and here's what it says. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, it's interesting the way that in each of these texts, uh, Jesus in the New Testament and God himself in the Old Testament says, here's, here are your marching orders, you ought to be like I am. And it's some explanation of his character. God is holy, holy, holy. We, we summarize in some sense, who is God? He's other, he's holy. And God says, you have to be like I am. Well, Jesus takes that same idea, and I think in both of those passages in Matthew and in Luke, he's, he's thinking about this one in, in Leviticus. And he says, well, not just holy, but perfect. Not just perfect, but merciful. And that's what he calls the people to. Now, uh, let's keep going here. What is the context in Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 19. You didn't know that you were going to have to know all of these things today. It is love your neighbor. Absolutely. Now, uh, how does that compare to what we're talking about in the New Testament? Well, uh, that chapter of Leviticus 19 has a lot happening in it. Actually, it, it talks about some things that we would think of as ceremonial holiness, bringing your, uh, your things before the altar and, uh, and bringing your, um, your gifts and, and the way that you offer sacrifices and all these other things. But then it gets into what we, we might call social justice issues, uh, things like not oppressing your neighbor, things like keeping back the wages of the hired man, things like um, taking your, your field and only harvesting it up right to the edges, but leaving the edges so that the poor and the sojourner who are among you can come and can glean from your fields. Let's take a look at Leviticus chapter 19 together. Turn there with me. I don't have this one on the screen, I'm sorry. So we're going we're gonna to skim a little bit here. Uh, but uh, we find in Leviticus chapter 19, it begins, verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then he gets into some of these, these issues, these commands. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. And it, it goes on. But notice what he end, how he ends, verse 3. He declares first, I am holy. And then he gives them a command, and then he declares his name again. So he shows his character, he tells them what to do, and he repeats who he is. Do you see that? You shall be holy, as I, the Lord your God, am holy. Uh, each one of you shall revere his mother and his father. You shall keep my Sabbaths. I am Yahweh your God. He repeats who he is. Now we see that same pattern following through. Jump down to verse 9 what we might call social justice issues, mercy issues. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. 
And the Lord repeats, this is who I am. You shall be like who I am. You shall show forth my character in the world. How do you do it? Well, you do it by showing mercy to those who are among you, those who are poor, uh, those who are the foreigner and the sojourner, the, the refugee, we might call them, passing through Israel. Uh, make sure that you leave something for them. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You sh and so profane the name of your God, I am Yahweh. And it continues. The, the same idea continues through. And so we get this idea that Jesus picks up on in Luke and in Matthew. Well, what is the basis of our mercy? What is the basis of even loving our enemies? Not just those who are close to us, not just those uh, who we like and like us, not just those that we're buddy-buddy with, but even those who hate us, who despitefully use us, he would say in, in Luke chapter 6. Well, what do we do? We ought to show them mercy because that's what God does. So here's the foundation. It begins uh, in the character of God. John Calvin says this. Uh, it's Presbyterian Sunday School. I have to quote John Calvin. Um, and this actually is not a commentary on Leviticus. It's not a commentary on Luke. This is a commentary on uh, Psalm, chapter, uh, Psalm 30. Calvin says, There is nothing in men which resembles God more truly than in doing good to others. Nothing in men which resembles God more truly than doing good to others. This is what the Lord gave his people in the land. They're about to enter, and he says, here's what you should do in the land. Care for the poor, care for the sojourner, care for those who are with you, care for the hired worker, care for those who are in need. And Jesus, in a sense, almost expands it. Don't just care for those who love you, but care for your enemies as well. and Do good to them, and this is the basis that you want to show forth God's character. So... If we want to be stern this morning, we want to say, well, what is our motivation? Uh, we could be stern and we could frame the whole thing, this, this conversation of mercy ministry around a command. Why should you be merciful? Well, because God has commanded it. You should be merciful as the Lord is merciful. You should, you should be holy as he's holy, and that includes being kind to others. Well, he is merciful to his people, and his people ought to show mercy too, and that could be the end of the story. This, this by the way, is also a gospel command. This isn't just a Leviticus thing. This isn't just a, oh, no, here I go. I've got to love my enemies, uh, or else I won't be loved by the Lord. This shows up uh, in, in a different way in Galatians chapter 2. Paul is writing there. You, you know uh, the context of Galatians 2. It comes immediately after Galatians 5, uh, but Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit, the works of the flesh contrasted by the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and he ends, he transitions from, from what we have as chapter 5 to chapter 6 by saying, you therefore must keep in step with the Spirit, keep, keep walking with the Spirit as the Spirit is at work in you, keep living out and, and showing the works of God's character at work in you. And then Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, a point of application, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not just the law of Moses, not just the, Levo the law of Leviticus, fulfill the law of Christ. That is, what have you seen and heard in Jesus? What has he summarized for you? How has he told you to keep his commands? Well, he's, he's told you to love one another. And loving one another means bearing one another's burdens. Now, it might be that he's just talking about the weird people in the church. And I'm one of them, right? And so your burden is to bear with me. 
but maybe not give me the things that I need for my, my physical needs. And I, I think Paul's talking here about those who are in need in the church. And this is a, this is a one another, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so obedience, whether we're talking about Old Testament, whether we're talking about the Gospels, whether we're talking about the Epistles, why should we engage in mercy in the church? Why should we care about one another at all? Well, God has commanded it. And he's shown it uh, in his character, and that's a good first step. But there is something else. We also have uh, the example of our Savior. Now, uh, we're going to take a short digression here. Uh, The example of our Savior. Uh, I want you to do some more brainstorming. Uh, Think about them. Um, Let's think about the examples that we can name uh, where Christ meets the needs of the people other than when he's dying and being resurrected for the sins of his elect, or uh, when he is preaching the gospel explicitly. What are the other ways that Jesus was merciful, compassionate? What are the ways that he cared for those who were in need or hurting, to take the language of, of Keller from the beginning? Dave and then Frank. Right, right. If you want to, you can make me clean as a leper. And Jesus says, it's one word in the Greek, thelo, I want, I desire. This is my desire, to make you clean. And so he touched them. So we've got healings. We've got healings of those who were unclean. Okay, Frank? Good. So we have healings in one sense of a leper. We have a healing of a woman. Uh, while he's on the way uh, to, uh, to heal this daughter, and even after he hears that she's dead, he says, no, 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 I'm still coming. Here I come. We're still going to take care of this. Good. Yep. Absolutely. When, when nobody else would. And I think that, that's right to think of that as part of, of Christ's mercy. You know, we think of his ministry to the people, we think of healings, raising the dead, uh, giving sight to the blind, all these things that Jesus talks about uh, in that passage that we just looked at where he summarizes his ministry in, in Luke chapter 7. Uh, the blind receive their sight, the dead are raised, the lame are healed. Uh, but but also the poor have good news preached to them. Not just that, uh, that he gives all these physical needs, but he, he deals kind of with social needs, we could say. He hangs out with those who are ostracized. That's part of his compassion and his mercy. Tim? You, you also get a gold star today, Tim. Um, so we're naming them. But I've already thought of that one. So we are in sync today. Here, here we are. Uh, this is a, a wonderful example. Here's what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. We could also call that mercy. Uh, he had mercy upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, I told you to think about... Uh, times that we're not teaching. Uh, it's interesting uh, 
um, that often we, we think about, and I think rightly so, as we read the Gospel of John especially, and John talks about all of Jesus' miracles as signs pointing to who Jesus is. And we think that these are primary, uh, and, and that uh, all of his teaching sort of points through the signs. It's interesting that it tells us uh, that first he has compassion on them, first he teaches them, and then he feeds them. They were already listening. They already heard his words, and yet he continued to minister to them. He didn't wrap up at the end and say, well, you've got my teaching. That's all you need. There you go. Be warm and be well fed. No, no, they're in the wilderness. Uh, they're far from home. They have physical needs, and Jesus has compassion on them. Great. What others? What others can you think about? Frank. Yeah, and so that was a, a wonderful, magnificent miracle if you really think about it and think about what it, it points to. It points to Christ as the provider. But there is also this idea that he's saving this man a lot of faith, a lot of social capital in, in that situation there when if your, your guests come and show up at your house and you can't show hospitality in the ancient world, you're like a dead man. Uh, you, you are written off. Uh, you are thought very low of. Uh, and Jesus steps in uh, and, and helps him. Think about some of the other times that he does it. Frank, you mentioned earlier the woman with the issue of blood. Now, he healed her. Almost, in a sense, unbeknownst to him, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? Because he felt the power go out from him. And we wrestle with this, uh, the reality of the incarnation, that he's all-knowing and yet he's, he's limited uh, chooses to be limited in his humanity, and what does that mean, and how can he possibly not know who touched him? We, we don't know. Uh, but after finding out uh, that someone had touched him, why didn't he just keep on walking? Good. Boom. There's another one. Let's keep going. We've got a girl to heal. Why didn't he keep going? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and he stops not only to point out her faith, but to restore her to the society. Because she had an issue that nobody would know about in a sense, uh, but they knew that she was unclean. She's been unclean for 12 years, and so why hold out hope now? And Jesus stops and says, what everybody else hasn't seen, she's well. She's restored. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any others? Bill? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Christ is the one who, uh, who holds all creation in the sway of his hand, uh, who upholds and sustains the entire universe, uh, and he, he sends good things even on those who don't deserve it. Absolutely. Others. What other ways did Christ meet the needs of those around him? How did he show compassion? Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. How was that showing mercy? Mm-hmm. 
Christ had time for the least of these. And that was part of his compassion and part of his mercy. It would have been very easy, and I think the disciples, uh, their impulse was, Jesus is too important to deal with these kids. They're not going to understand what he's teaching. They're not, I mean, they're probably many of them were infants in arms. And yet the Lord stopped and he let them come. It's, that's, a, that's a parallel in some sense to Jesus' meeting with the tax collectors, with the sinners. It's a parallel in some sense to Jesus receiving the sinful woman with the jar of ointment. Don't forget that sometimes it can be really merciful to allow someone who's an outcast to be useful, to allow them to, to show mercy to others and to, and to validate. That's, in a sense, uh, what Jesus was doing. He, was, he, he turned it into a spiritual lesson, no doubt. Uh, this isn't just about building up her self-esteem. That's not what it was. But here was a woman who was an outcast who came into someone's home, and the person he was with, Simon, uh, the Pharisee, said, if this man were a prophet, he would know. He's thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching him. What, what's the undertone there? Ugh. Ugh. Clearly, he's not a prophet, and clearly, she is unclean and somebody that you don't, you don't associate with. And yet, Jesus said, no, she's done a beautiful thing. She has served me. He turned from Simon, the Pharisee, who's hosting this great banquet, and he says, what she has done will be told everywhere. And he, he validates her service, in a sense, and that was part of Jesus' compassion. He had time for the least of these. Good. Any others? All right. Uh, here's a summary for us. Acts chapter 10, verses 37 and 38. Peter uh, has been uh, drawn by the Lord um, and, uh, and shown by the Holy Spirit that he needs to go and associate with the Gentiles. He goes to Cornelius' house. Uh, the Lord has shown him not to call any man unclean, and the Lord shows no partiality. And then he goes and he begins to speak to Cornelius. Sorry. Uh, he begins to speak to Cornelius... And he first gives a summary of Jesus' ministry. This is what he says. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How do you summarize Jesus' earthly ministry? He went about doing good. Good things. He cared for people. This is the example that we have of Christ. And, and so if we think back to that quote from Calvin, there's nothing in which men resemble God more truly than in doing good to others. There is nothing in which we resemble Christ more truly, I think we could say, than in doing good to others. Now, Christ did a, a good that we could never do. He laid down his life for all those who will come to him. He, he took upon himself the sin and the, and the unrighteousness of all of his people, and he, he raised them up into newness of life. We, we can't do that, and yet we can do. Jesus actually says, greater works than these will you do, because his spirit will be among his people. And I think that's a good transition. We have, uh, why mercy? Well, obedience to God's commands, or, or showing his character. We have the example of our Savior, uh, and then we also have the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. You see, this great example that the Holy Spirit uh, is working through the church. And so I, I want to pull up uh, three texts together. Uh, let's all turn first to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to see a little bit of a development as we walk through these three texts. Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 
uh, to 47. Let's turn there. And as we're reading this, a simple question for us. What in this passage, what do we see in the very early church that ought to challenge us? What do we see happening that is worthy of emulation, that is, that is good and of, of good repute, whatever is lovely, whatever is honorable, whatever is noble, what are the things we should think on? Uh, what should challenge us? Here's what it says, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves, that's, that they is the 3,000 that were added on that day to their number. So uh, 3,120 disciples, all told, basically. Um, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What should challenge us in this passage? What do you see? There we go. Selling possessions. What kind of challenge should we find there, Jay? Why were they doing that? What, What value is that? Yeah, and I think it clearly is tied to any uh, who had need, right? And so I think at first, now notice this, this could be a prickly passage, uh, especially for us Americans. There's not a command here to, by the way, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to live in a commune. (laughs) This is not the point. Uh, This is not saying that if you want to be a real Christian, you have to sell your houses and fields and and you have to have everything in common, and nobody gets to own any private property. That's not the point, but it does show us priorities. In fact, I think it's maybe even more challenging because there isn't an explicit teaching. It doesn't say that the apostles began to tell them that if they wanted to be in the church, not only did they have to repent and be baptized, but they also had to sell their things. This is just, it just happens. It's just, this is the overflow of the Spirit working in their lives. They begin to sell their things and to give to any as they had need. Good. Dave, what should challenge us in this passage? Okay. Yeah, and and this is the overflow of being in community with one another. I think this is true. You're not alone, Dave, uh, in some ways, but but not in this way. We we all have that natural inward bent, right? Uh, It's it's that inertia that that the liquid will fall to the lowest level. Well, when we have nothing else to think about, we have nothing else to do, we'll we'll think about ourselves. 
and we'll think about what is, is pressing to us. And I think that's the, that's the inward bent of all of our sinful, prideful hearts. But it's the Lord's mercy to gather these people together so that they would see and recognize one another's needs. I think it's amazing that they recognize the needs. They, they not only were together, uh, but they, they were in enough community that they could, they could say, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so over there, they, you know, there's, yeah, we're getting there, we're getting there. Acts chapter 6 is next. Good. Yeah, Frank, what should challenge us? Devoted to hospitality. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What else were they devoted to? Becky? Yep. Yep. Now, there are, there are two contexts, breaking bread. Uh, there's breaking bread and there's receiving bread in their homes with glad and generous hearts, right? I think these are two things, actually, in the context. Uh, the second one there is this hospitality aspect that Frank is raising, receiving their bread in their homes with glad and generous hearts. That's, that's hospitality together. Uh, that's sharing in mercy ministry. What's the first one? What, what is the context of the first breaking bread? Worship. This is the Lord's Supper. They're sharing in the, in the communion meal with one another. And notice, that I think this should challenge us, they've got the right balance. They're not falling prey to, well, here's the blind spot. Well, we're just going to be people that care for one another's needs. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the prayers and to breaking bread together. So they've got this balance down between the spiritual and, and the physical. Brian. That's right. It was part of our large meal that we had yep. together. Yep. Right, right. And it would have been, uh, that's what, what you see in uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, you're doing it all wrong because you're taking this meal, and it was always in the context of a meal, and they would separate out uh, the cup and the bread, and, but it was, it was this really big community thing, and then sometimes called a love feast. Right, right, something, something like that, yeah, yeah, and the problem was that they were turning that into something for themselves instead of to, to be together, but you're right. So there is, there is almost this overlap, there, there's the worship, there's the hospitality, and they're all kind of mixed together, uh, and, and in a sense, as, as they should be. Good. Kathy, what should challenge us? Ooh. I think this is talking about the, um, the attitude uh, or, or the, uh, the name that they have outside the walls of the church. The repu- thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, I speak for a living. Um, <clears throat> so it, it talks about the reputation they have in the wider culture. When was the last time, uh, it's never happened to me, when was the last time uh, somebody came to you and said, you know, your church has really great favor? With us, we we're not a part of you, but we we really think you're doing a great job. Uh, maybe there are opportunities, um, but but notice so far it seems 
that their hospitality seems to be in-house, caring for one another. It doesn't say that they're selling their fields and their properties to care for the poor somewhere out there. But they're still being recognized. They're being noticed. Uh, and some of that sort of has to be overflowing, right? Uh, that, that they also would have been loving the neighbors uh, that were around them, even their enemies. Okay, let, let's turn to Acts chapter 6 before we run out of time. Here we have the church, several chapters and several thousand people later. Uh, and so let's see what has changed between Acts chapter 2, where it seems to be this, this lovey-dovey, everybody was selling and everybody was giving, and we all had things together in common. Uh, Acts chapter 6 says this, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What has changed about this situation since Acts chapter 2? Dave? Dave? <laughs> okay. So, it, so it's a logistical and economical issue. Is that all that's happening? And what is the reason? Uh, let's go with your, um, your contention that socialism does not scale beyond the Acts 2 level. Why not? Why can't everybody just be happy and all together? What did you see? Brian. Okay. Yeah. Unless you own some of it, right? Sure. Sure. Good. Good. Uh, a helpful corrective. So, but why is that not the situation here? What has changed um, between everybody wants to sell their private property to care for one another, and hey, we. Ooh, we've got a situation we have to figure out here. Ronnie. Awkward. Small, awkward, medium, and large, yeah. Yeah, this is the awkward stage uh, where it is a logistical issue. How do we get uh, the most needs met in the church? But it's a sin issue, right? What else is happening? What is the problem? They're showing partiality. Right. Right. And they're all a part of the same church, and in fact, they're all Jews. There's a cultural divide, maybe even an ethnic divide, between Jews that were raised in the Mediterranean world and Jews that were raised in Palestine, and those whose first language and first culture is Greek, and those whose first language and first culture would have been Aramaic, uh, and there is this clash, 
and people in the body of Christ are sitting on one side of the gathering, and they're pointing over there and saying, we don't want to care for their widows. We want to care for our widows. Now, what is, what is the remedy in the church? All right, tell you what, let, let's set up a Hellenistic church over here. You, you deal with that. Well, let's set up a, a Hebrew church over here. You deal with that. What is the, what is the remedy? What's that? Bureaucracy? Uh, I wouldn't go that far. Let's pick spiritual men who have oversight of these things, who we can trust or, or we can hope will not fall into the same sins of partiality. Notice what it says. Pick men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. These aren't just any old men. Ah, pick whoever you want. In fact, why don't you make sure you've got three and a half Greeks and three and a half Hebrews? No, no, no. It's, it's not even just equality. Right. Uh, Frank's figuring out the half person there. Um, it's not even just an equity issue. It's a spiritual issue. And the apostles, I think, are doing the right thing. The, the word here, by the way, um, far be it from us to give up preaching the word to wait tables, to serve tables. Uh, that's the word where we get our, our word deacon, diakonos, to serve tables, to uh, to meet the needs of those who are among us. And so the answer, uh, under the apostles' direction, is the ordination of men to ministries of mercy. Notice what it says. They prayed and they laid their hands on them. It's the same thing that Paul talks about when he talks to Timothy, who became an elder. Don't neglect the gift that you have by the laying on of hands. So the Lord raises up, we could call it bureaucracy. We could also call it an office in the church. Uh, those who are given uh, to this task of mercy ministry now, uh, are the people exempt? Does everybody get to say, all right, we got deacons. Stephen and Philip and Nicanor and Prochorus uh, and, and the rest of those guys, they'll take care of it. Dave? Yeah. Absolutely. I think this is, this is really helpful for us, and this helps us to, I think that blind spot analogy, bringing that back in is, is good, because you have folks, um, you know, that think, they, they think uh, in terms of structure. Well, if mercy ministry needs to happen in the church, what's the structure for it? Who's in charge of this? You have other people that are just like structure-free. Everything's organic. Uh, everything's fine, we'll just, you know, as a need comes up, we'll meet it, we'll see it happening, we'll, we'll be in there, and we'll know one another well enough, and we need some of both in the church, right? We, we need people who have their eyes open enough to see the needs that are around them, whether they're physical needs, whether it's distributing to the poor, whether it's caring for the downcast, whether it's, you know, we need uh, to increase uh, both of those. We need those who will look from a, an oversight situation, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and we also need people on the ground who are saying, well, well, here's this need. Well, I could take it to the deacons or I could, I could just meet that need. Right? I, could, I could just be a friend to this person. 
And I don't have to call the, the pastor or the deacons and say, you know, somebody needs a visit. Well, that's good. If somebody needs a visit, call the pastor. I'll, I'll come and visit. We'll send some deacons. We'll send some elders. But sometimes we need people who are, who are doing both. Um, and so we, we fill in for one another's blind spots. All right, the last uh, passage. Becky. I will, yes. That's not a wrong question. In fact, that's such a good question that the entire class next week is about that. Uh, so hold that thought. Today we're talking about theory. Next week, Lord willing, we're talking about practice. Uh, and, and my hope is that I've got a surprise for you. But I don't want to tell you what that surprise is because I haven't talked to him yet. Uh, but, uh, but my hope is that we'll have a surprise and we'll, we'll talk about this together uh, in really concrete terms. So ho hold on to that. Perfect question. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm sorry, chapter 5. There's a typo there. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read uh, verses 3 and 4 and then jump down to 9 to 16, and we're about out of time, so we're going to make this quick. Honor widows who are truly widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first show godliness to their own household and make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Jump down to verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows. When their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips, busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, <clears throat> excuse me, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. Here's the question, who needs help and how does the church decide? It's just whoever shows up and says, hey, I'm in a tight spot. How does the church decide, Brian? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Uh, men that you hope are discerning as well. Right, right. Yeah, uh, part of uh, the fruits of the Spirit and, and trying to decide and, and see between these different things. Uh, and there is uh, there's an encouragement here that, that especially on the church level, uh, the church needs to be discerning about who they give uh, aid to. Notice that, that uh, they're not to give aid to those who have other avenues of aid. Is that because the, the church shouldn't care about everybody's needs? No, it's because there are other godly avenues that the Lord has already established. Notice this aspect of households. If there's a widow and she's got children who can care for her, don't bring her to the church and enroll her. This idea of enrolling is sort of an ongoing, regular uh, care uh, a support of the widow, almost a, a, a pension sort of fixed uh, income situation for the one who's really a widow. If they've got children, let children do what children are supposed to do and care for their parents. That's, that's a good and godly thing. Let's not run over other opportunities for godliness outside the organized church. Um, let's not overly restrict 
the church's ability to, to do the most good to the most people. Good. So th this is just a, another way of thinking through it that is, as the church increases, uh, as uh, we go from that small, awkward, medium, large stage, uh, and, and who knows if we'll ever get past awkward. Um, but, but as these things happen, it's a good thing that we've got these, these godly men filled with the Holy Spirit who can help us think through these things. But what the deacons do isn't necessarily separate from what every Christian is called to do. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Here's where I want to end today. Uh, with everybody's favorite bedtime reading, a quote from the BCO. And this is uh, the definition of the office of deacon uh, from the Presbyterian Church in America Book of uh, Church Order. Uh, and I think it's just a, a wonderful definition uh, to show us what are the deacons doing. Well, the office of deacon is one of sympathy and service. It's after the example of the Lord. We've talked about this, the Lord Jesus. It expresses also the communion of the saints, especially in their helping one another in time of need. It is the duty of deacons to minister to those who are in need, to the sick, to the friendless, to any who may be in distress. It is their duty also to develop the grace of liberality in the members of the church, to devise effective methods of collecting gifts of the people, and to distribute these gifts among the objects to which they are contributed. That last portion is not just uh, mercy ministry, but it includes mercy ministry. Today we'll be collecting the deacon's offering. It is entrusted to the deacons to increase the gifts of liberality in the church. We should have a, a week where the deacons come and say, this is for the people who are in need. And you contribute and the deacons divide it and, and they go into their meetings and nobody knows what happens in there. But godly men are in charge of seeing that, that the funds are distributed as they have need. But notice this, this phrase here, the office of the deacon expresses the communion of the saints. The office of deacon is an expression of what we're all to be doing, caring for one another, following the example of Christ. Well, how do they do it? Well, they minister to those who are in need. They minister to the sick. They minister to the friendless. They minister to any who may be in distress. Don't think of the deacons simply as the pocketbook of the church. And don't think of mercy ministry to one another simply as, as opening your wallet to meet somebody's need. We talk about hospitality. What a wonderful way to care for those who are in need. You know, we, we live in a, a, a near community, Boston Metro West, where our, our streets, our towns aren't full of abject poverty. Right? We, we don't see the homeless living on most of the streets in, in Concord, Acton, uh, all the other areas where you folks may live. Maybe. Maybe you do. Um, but, but as you read in, in the society, a lot of people are talking, and who knows if they're right or they're wrong, but they're talking about uh, the epidemic of loneliness. People are just disconnected from one another. We thought social media was going to connect us and we were going to have all these friends and you, you just sit there by yourself in your room and you scroll and you scroll and you scroll and there's this loneliness. Well, how, how do you meet the needs of the people around you? Maybe it's by being a friend to the friendless. Maybe it's by opening your home and sharing in hospitality. Uh, and, uh, and the deacons, uh, along with the elders, but the deacons um, ought to be examples in this regard as they follow Christ and show us how to do the same. So uh, next week, we're going to take up Becky's question. Well, let's talk practically. Uh, we've gotten some of the why mercy ministry out of the way, uh, but next week we'll come back and talk about what does this look like in our church, what ought to, to look like in our church, and how can you be involved in well, as well. Becky. I think it does. Yes. Yes, I think it does. Good. Let's pray. 
Gracious Lord and God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would be growing us in wisdom. Pray that you'd be growing us in mercy. Pray that you would be growing us in the grace of liberality toward one another. Help us, O Lord, to be merciful and to be perfect and holy. As you are merciful and perfect and holy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.